its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. In this discussion, we'll consider a topic that is critically important for agriculture, not to mention health, sanitation, and so much more. Of course, that topic is water access. The Great Plains region has long benefited from its location atop the Ogallala Aquifer, a shallow water table that's one of the largest aquifers in the world. Agricultural irrigation systems and drinking water needs place high demand on this critically important source of fresh water. Of course, we wouldn't be discussing the Ogallala Aquifer if there wasn't a challenge at hand. The aquifer is at risk of depletion, as demand for its water far exceeds the rate of natural replenishment, which mainly comes from rainwater. Further complicating matters are increases in drought, particularly in the western portions of several Great Plains states, as well as wind-related extreme weather events for which the region is known. As such, access to fresh water in the Great Plains cannot be taken for granted, a reality that countries such as Bangladesh, Burkina Faso, and Kenya know all too well. In many countries, water is distinctly a women's issue, as, fam as women and girls are responsible for procuring increasingly scarce water resources for their families every single day. Projects to strengthen water security in those countries may be able to teach us a thing or two about what makes a water system or management approach effective, even in developed countries that need to protect their freshwater sources right now. For this panel, our, our first guest will explain her strategy for ensuring communities have adequate water supplies for their needs while economically empowering women. Our second guest will then explain a tactic for ensuring that accessible water is safe water. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Sydney Gray, founding director of Mama Maji, and Terry Dankovich, CTO and co-founder of Folia Materials. Sydney, I would like to start with you. Could you please provide a brief overview of your organization, Mama Maji? Thank you, Aubrey, and thank you for having me. Uh, Mamaji was founded in 2012 to empower women to change their world through water. We really leverage water and sustainable infrastructure to advance women, transforming one of the biggest barriers facing women around the world into an asset for their advancement. Over the last nine years, we've worked with 700 women to address water and sanitation issues, building companies that provide 15,900 people clean water. These women have gone on to train more than 30,000 people on health issues related to water and sanitation as well. We specifically work with women to design and build social enterprises addressing the unique water needs of their community. Thanks, Sydney. And Terry, welcome. Could you please uh, briefly introduce us to Folia Materials and its technology? Yeah, hello. Thanks for having me as well. Um, I'm uh, the co-founder and CTO of Folia Materials. We've been around since about 2016. Um, and this project that we started is basically an antimicrobial water filter paper. So this is our paper. I have little props here. Um, so this paper um, is treated with uh, antimicrobial chemicals so it can kill uh, bacteria, viruses, protozoa, and remove dirt and other sorts of contaminants to have safe drinking water. And it 
was not very intuitive how to go from a piece of paper to a water filter. So we made a funnel design, much like a pour over coffee funnel. And it goes into, this is a Kulshi, I'm gonna back up and you can see it. This is a Bangladeshi water container um, that it fits nicely into the top of, and we have a special lid and can go all together with a bottle. This is your, another water container, a big bottle of water. Anyway, um, so there's my little demo for you all, <laughs> but essentially, uh, it's an innovative way to package water as like a, just a simple filter that you can buy one at a time at a retail store. So it's not only the water filter, but also our um, way to distribute the filters, which um, is a little bit unusual compared to other filters, which I can talk about later. <laughs> Fantastic. I loved the demo. It really puts it all <laughs> in perspective. So, Sydney, I'm going to start off my questions for you. Something that absolutely fascinates me and excites me about your approach is that Mama Maji turns access to sufficient, safe water, once again, a women's challenge in many communities, into a women's economic empowerment opportunity. So, can you explain to us the Maji Mama's Social Enterprise Program? Absolutely. Um, the thing about water is water is really a women's sphere. When you talk about water with any community, women are usually the ones that know the most about it, know really where to find it, what it affects, how much it costs, exactly when it's available and how often. Um, that really gives an opportunity to engage women in a different way around water than might be normally acceptable depending on who you're with or in ways that are kind of new to the area. So the in the through the social enterprise program, we actually specifically work with women to build businesses that are relevant. We work with them first to identify key stakeholders in the community. We train them to approach them, organize them, building a business eventually that can sustainably meet the needs of their community. We then work with them to find a solution that makes sense for their geography and for their culture. Not every place has the same solution to water issues. In a place with a high water table and maybe a density that's urban or peri-urban, the best solution might be a borehole with a kiosk network. In a very rural area uh, with the water table that's not accessible, it might be something like building and selling water tanks. We really train, uh, they end up being called Maji Mamas, the mamas in leadership, public speaking, business, water and sanitation, and any of the technical skills they need for the business structure we work with them to design. And we spend several years working with them on this. Within the first year, we work with them to identify customers and seek their contracts. And then we work with them to learn and find and manage support from both local and international sources. The result and the goal is a woman-owned, woman-run sustainable social enterprise that really transforms water from a burden into an opportunity. Awesome. And I'm actually going to jump right back with a follow-up for you before proceeding with Terry. Uh, the most recent iteration of your program trains women in the creation and use of interlocking stabilized soil blocks or ISSBs mm -hmm. to build water tanks. And so maybe a basic question, what are ISSBs and why are they ideal for this work? Absolutely. Well, I, I I don't have a physical ISSB. I pulled the picture from behind, which is actually a water tank built from ISSBs in the community. Three years ago, uh, Mamaji was invited to come into Maasai community about two hours south of Nairobi. Um, as I mentioned earlier, different communities have different water situations. South in the Rift Valley, the water table is very deep. So dropping something like a borehole is not very practical and would be extremely expensive with a very high likelihood of failure. And then even if we were successful, these communities are very, very rural. So it's impractical to run pipes for kiosks 
to, to kiosk their households. It just would not produce a sustainable business for the women. Working with them, we really identified this interlocking stabilized soil block technology as a good solution for water infrastructure in this community. Um, earth, it's a type of earth architecture. Earth architecture is a millennia old concept that has received kind of renewed interest over the last 50 years. Um, innovation specifically in both production and composition have made the building method a lot more accessible to communities without excessive training in something like masonry, and they tend to be much more cost effective than anything available on the market. This modern interlocking stabilized soil blocks are actually produced, the women, the women produce them using a press that is manufactured in Kenya. It is manual, highly portable, very effective for a rural community, and it ensures that these ISSBs can be produced on site without electricity, including these curved ones that can be used to construct water tanks and pit latrines. So once a water site, a site for a water tank has been selected, Soils excavated from the foundation and sifted. This murram soil is mixed with a small amount of cement and then manually pressed into a block. Each block is checked for texture and quality before being stacked to dry. It just needs a couple weeks to dry and then they are fully cured. It does not require firewood. Um, traditional bricks, things like that use, use firewood and it's very uh, environmentally destructive and causes a lot of deforestation and air pollution. It is also expensive. It adds to the cost of the actual building materials. And because these are interlocking, that aspect of that name means that the blocks are produced with special protrusions, both on the sides and the top and bottom, that allow them to connect more tightly during construction. That both makes it more viable for something like a water tank and reduces the need for mortar and decreases permeability. It also reduces the amount of masonry training that is required for use because they lock together a bit like Legos. That makes them extremely cost effective and extremely effective at something like a water tank or a pit latrine also much cheaper than, because, than the traditional polyethylene tanks. So for a rural community where you'd have to drive down polyethylene tanks from Nairobi, you have the transportation costs get extremely high. So these actually are much cheaper. So in Kajiado County, we're working with Chief Kosium, one of the first female Maasai chiefs, and 30 Majimamas that were trained in business leadership, public speaking, water sanitation, and in construction. So they We've trained them extensively in construction, and they built more than 10 of these tanks in the last year to provide water access, specifically in response to COVID. Amazing. Um, more questions on all of that to come. In the meantime, I'm going to jump to Terry. Um, I'm hoping you could potentially explain to us what niche in water technology Folia is filling by developing these inexpensive water filters. And on top of that, what social factors have to be considered to ensure the filter's efficacy? Yeah, good question. Um, so uh, our water filters, as I said before, they're made out of paper. Paper, as you know, is incredibly cheap material. Um, so we are actually selling the filters for only 20 cents a piece for 20 liters of safe water. So the idea is that this is a consumable um, that is rapidly consumed, such as like your regular, like, fast moving consumer goods like soap and toothbrushes, toothpaste, that sort of supply chain. Um, and that's exactly where we're targeting how to distribute these filters. And this is in contrast to the other water filters, which are built more like appliances in comparison. So they, you know, are something that I think the cheapest I've seen is $20 a pop and they go up to hundreds of dollars and RO systems could be quite pricey. Um, so it's kind of a, a different way to look at the water um, water filter products out there is like you don't need to have something that's going to last for six to months to a year or something like that that you don't remember when you're supposed to change your filters and then they just don't you know 
your um, level of uh, cleanliness ends up going down at some point. And it's also harder to get initial buy-in and so on and so forth. Like, um, so we're trying to reach like more of a mass market with this water filter. And our main competitor actually is the bottled water industry, which, you know, obviously you can get bottled water trucked out to almost anywhere. Um, <laughs> but obviously there's sustainability issues with bottled water and um, trucking water around that you know, are fairly obvious to, I think, a lot of us here. Um, but so we're offering a different business model there um, with uh, with how we are selling these filters. Um, and the social factors that are important are just uh, basically like really speaking to the people that we think are going to have the most value from this and um, tailoring our product design to fit into, like I showed you guys the call sheet uh, a few minutes ago to like fit into what their regular habits. Um, and, you know, this might require a little bit more work when you go from one place to the next versus like, you know, bottled water where you just put a different label on it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, we think that people do really value that it's something that is made for for them in, instead of like a generic like uh, you, a lot of water products that are competing with us design things for drinking water out of a bucket which is usually not used for drinking water but for like wash water for example and there's other like things along those lines that you're like well i think that you need to take into effect what the person actually does in their day-to-day -day lives and how it fits into their like basically their kitchen um, and how it gets used there. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I actually have a follow-up question for you as well. Um, this is a combination of my question and a question from an audience member who we are <laughs> clearly thinking on the same wavelength. So, um, our audience member Fadi is wondering, um, if it would in theory be possible to work with this filter idea in refugee camps. And so mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk about the theoretical use of your technology in humanitarian aid applications like refugee camps or following natural disasters. Yeah, sure. Um, so, as I said before, our current design right now has been tailored towards um, rural Bangladesh, um, where we're distributing through well, two different ways, uh, the small retail stores and also women door-to-door -door entrepreneurs. Um, and while those things do have some overlap with refugee camps in terms of uh, limited resources, I suppose, there's a lot of differences there. Um, and you know, we're a very small company, so I'm not gonna like make any claims that we can figure this out right away. But, um, you know, so some of the things that we would need to do to be able to address, um, I would say in the business world, new markets, such as refugee camps or um, other sorts of um, like natural disaster, displacement, et cetera, um, is to really understand the problems and needs of those um, camps and, we had actually a project a couple of years back with the UN Humanitarian Response Depot, which for, is like local, like strategically located depots for supplies for the humanitarian response community. And there's like six of them across the world. Um, and they had a, a little design project with us to provide feedback and you know, certain things were like, well, it's got to work with jerry cans and you have to think about that. There's nowhere to put anything down besides the ground and, you know, a long list of design requirements, essentially. So there's a lot of challenges in 
doing the human centered design for such a setting, but it is possible. <laughs> it's just, you know, more resources than that we currently have. And the ultimate approval for, at least for the UN humanitarian response depot was going through UNICEF because UNICEF, like most human or most waterborne diseases affect children, UNICEF being the children's fund. Um, so it's, it's just a different pathway um, to get to markets, so, but it is definitely possible upon more awesome. more time more resources and all that <laughs> thank you so much for that terry sydney i'm going to jump back to you now i would imagine that some communities are not completely comfortable with women performing construction work or earning money especially in the communities in which you have been working so how do you work with those communities to overcome this very large challenge mm. Yeah, that's a big question. That's a very big question. Um, it's time and relationship building. Um, I would say all communities, including especially the United States, uh, is not comfortable with women in construction. I've talked to a number of women in construction in the U.S. about about their experiences being in the industry, and it's very similar. I mean, it's just slightly different scales, slightly different issues. Um, one of the issues we had recently was actually getting a bank account for the Nyasha Majimama's building these tanks. Um, that took a long time uh, because they didn't want to open a bank account for a woman-owned business. Um, it, it takes time, it takes relationship building, and it takes working with the women where they're at. First and foremost, we follow their lead uh, about what they, when they tell us they want to do this, do this kind of a workshop, or they want to do it here, do these things, or do it at this speed, or do it in this order. Even when we don't understand, we do it their way. Um, they want to build this tank at this church as their demonstration, and it matters because of these things. Like, that's fine, even if it's not in a market center, then that's, they know how to work with their community the best. We also work with male advocates that have supported the women that we're working with. We work with the women first, but they often already have men in the community that support them. So we work with them and through them and use them often as a beard if needed, or as a support or as a different voice. Um, and we just build trust over time. Uh, they're starting to trust, especially over the last year and a half, in building 10 relief tanks for COVID for the community. They're starting to trust the construction of the women as being reliable. Um, they're starting to believe that it's there, and they're starting to see the women earning money when they have to during COVID because they're now the only, some of these women are the only bread earners for their family right now because of the COVID shutdowns. They shut down, you couldn't move between counties, and suddenly entire income is dried up. And the only reason some of these families are eating is because these women are working. It changes some perspectives. It takes time, it takes patience, and it takes following the women's lead. Thank you for that. I'm actually going to jump back with a follow-up. We've obviously been talking a bit about cultural norms and gender roles, uh, but how do a location's geography, how does the location's geography really influence the business model that you help women implement in their communities? And how does that combine with the cultural factors? Well, the geography, like the certain infrastructures can Certain types of infrastructure can work in certain places. Um, like in Kisumu and Kenya, the water table is very high. Lake Victoria is right there. Um, the community itself is very dense. So a borehole with a water tower doing a gravity irrigation system into, into households and into kiosks makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it makes sense. It's a viable business opportunity. Um, and then the actual structure of the business and how the business is run, who's taking money, how often is it done, who's manning the, who's manning the water kiosks, who's building them, who has to be involved in digging the trenches for their pipes to make the, you know, a political connection in the community. 
all those things are relative to the culture, but the infrastructure is relative to the geography. So for example, in Rift Valley, the soil is very good for these bricks, but the one place in the world that these bricks can't work is in um, Western Kenya, where they have uh, black cotton soil. These bricks can work pretty much everywhere in the world and, and are implemented in a lot of geographies, including India, including um, Southwest US. Uh, but black cotton soil wouldn't work with this, these bricks in Kisumu, but it works very well south of Nairobi in the Rift Valley, where there's plenty of soil available and you need very little cement to stabilize. That's that's super helpful um, for for I think our collective understanding here, Terry. I'm going to jump back to you um, and get back to something that you uh, mentioned slightly in one of your previous answers. In your initial deployment, Folia was working with a Bangladeshi women's network to facilitate door-to-door -door sales. So I was wondering if you could tell us why this strategy was effective for getting your product off the ground. Yeah, um, so yeah, we started a project in uh, Bangladesh about three years ago, and it was basically started off with a, a group called Info Lady Social, Info Lady Social, sorry, I kind of butchered that, um, which is a door-to-door -door network to sell all sorts of uh, like common household products to women, um, being that women are typically at home and men are out in the workforce um not always true but often um and basically uh they sell all sorts of things like you know there's a lot of sanitary pad sales through them for example and but also like various services like we saw them test somebody for their blood type like literally right there and like the person's like yard <laughs> so you know it's a, a variety of um things that are sold um so it also gave us this opportunity to you know, if it's a single item that's being sold, it's kind of different than when you have a collection of goods um, that are also all sort of related to health and well-being. So it it helped us like kind of gain a foothold as well to have people learn, oh, this is a health product. This can, you know, not just, uh, you know, get rid of some of the dirt in the water, but actually improve our health, our family's health. And it's important, especially with health related products to gained trust. Um, and so there was a lot of questions from, you, you know, the various, uh, the various people that we're trying to sell to, which is mostly mothers of these households about like what it was, how it would affect their family and like how they use it. And, you know, what, you know, how any new product, there's always like a million questions, <laughs> like with a very easy way for us to kind of uh, learn what people actually care about when they look at our product and how it fits into what 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 their lives are essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to dive into that a little bit more, something that you said, the concept of trust, because I would imagine that in the communities, uh, many of the communities we're talking about here, honestly, probably most communities in the world, there's an importance of local knowledge and trust in the deployment of technologies, including the folio filter. So I'm sure that some of our listeners um, might be interested or, or have even some experience deploying other sorts of technologies in communities that in communities where those technologies didn't originate. So can you just talk a little bit broadly about the importance of trust in this context? Yeah. Um, so. You know, right now, I said we've been working there for about three years. Of course, two of those years have been COVID related <laughs> disruptions. So, um, but we have, you know, gotten out about 33,000 filters and uh, product sales in that time. And they started off with the door to door sales as a way to like educate and give 
product demos and answer all those questions that I mentioned before. Um, and the building of trust is like, because especially with this product that prior to it, people were like, there's a lot of uh, tube walls, which is just a, you know, uh, just those well, local walls like Bangladesh is in a river Delta region, the Ganges Delta. So there's, there's no lack of water. <laughs> it's, it's more the quality of the water can be variable um, and quality being in chemical or microbiological pathogens. Um, so there's, a, there's um, a lot of uh, challenges with the, like educating the folks that it's not necessarily their well water that's contaminated. It's that there's latrines right next to the wells. And then by the time it gets to inside the household, 62% of water is contaminated with pathogens in Bangladesh. So pathogens are always hard to talk about as we are all kind of aware of COVID because it's something that can't be seen. And you, you, know, you don't know you are sick until you're sick. So it's very difficult to teach people about such things in general because it just requires um you know abstract thinking and um it's it's not easy <laughs> but and also we're asking for a behavior change because most of the people that we're working with so far have just been believed that their well water was totally fine and then all of a sudden somebody comes in and says hey you need to treat this and at first, you know, you, some people will be like, oh, well, this is great because, you know, it's going to be better for my family. But then other people are a little bit more hesitant for, because it's something different. Um, so it, there's been um, basically different ways to figure out uh, what appeals to different people, like by listening and asking, like, we've done a lot of surveys, for example, to ask what matters and like, you know, all, everything from like what the willingness to pay is to mm -hmm. which like kind of value proposition appeals to them most. And it's usually about the health of their children. Um, but, you know, it, every community, these things are going to be somewhat different. And you can't always just say, oh, these guys said this, so they'll work right. here. You kind of, there's always a kind of a listen in to the community and to the customer and all of that that is important for really connecting. That's really helpful and something that I think anyone can take with them from this conversation, regardless of what you are trying to apply, whether it's water related or not, to be completely honest. Um, I'm going to throw in a little flag here that we are, we have just over five minutes left. So we are in our speed round of conversation here and Sydney, I'm going to jump back to you now with a question. I understand that the women in one community with which you've worked recently. Um, has built a women's business center, which they actually requested themselves, which is pretty incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about this center and how it will be used? Yes, uh, it was something that was a dream of mine for them generally, like down the line, because one of the things is, you know, you need to store the ISSB machine. You need to be able to store the box somewhere. Like you can do it on site, but it'd be great if there's a workshop. So I'd wanted to do that for a while. I hadn't even brought it up to them. And they came, they came to us, oh, I think about Six months ago, we're just like, we really want to build this women's business center. We'll have these rooms for it. It will have pit latrines to the side. We want to do it. Like came with a whole idea um, asking us to help them figure out how to fund. Because a lot of like these tanks people can purchase. Um, community members are starting to come to the women to talk about purchasing them from the homes. But something like a business center, especially when they hadn't built a full building yet, they've just been building these tanks. Uh, it was a bit outside, so we had to find the funding for it and get some additional training so that they could learn how to build a building from what they've been learning about with building these tanks. Um, 
so we found the funding, they found a site, they secured a location, and we raised the money to be able to have them learn how to build the buildings and foundations and roofings and the decorations and build the second pit latrine that they've ever done um, in the location so that they'll have a place that they could sell the soap that they've been making in response to COVID, because they've also been making and selling both soap and masks and additional to other wash products that are relevant to the community. They'll have a location that they'll be able to store their, their machine and any bricks that are being dried, if, especially if it's in that region, um, a place to do kind of the building of it outside, and some additional rooms both for office space and for places for women to go if they need to. Um, one of the more difficult things about working with women in a lot of these communities is there's a lot of gender-based violence, uh, especially if you're working in women's empowerment. We're specialists in water and business, but inherently we've had to also learn how to engage in gender-based violence and domestic violence issues. Um, so we also wanted to make sure there was at least one or two rooms there that could act as a shelter if women ever ran into any issues with their family um, or temporarily, because we've definitely had that issue before. So yeah, it's gonna be, they're finishing it up right now, which I'm really excited about. I haven't gotten to go back to Kenya and see it, but I'm supposed to go back next month. I was supposed to go back last month of COVID um, to see what they've done and built this amazing building in addition to the 10 tanks they built in the last year and a half and and now two pit latrines. Wow, well, congratulations to them. And you're gonna have to let us know when you go to visit what it's like, because this sounds like a huge dream come true from your perspective, but you know, huge advancement for, for that community. And a follow-up question for you. So clearly these ISSBs, um, are very versatile. You know, we're talking about water tanks. Now we're talking about like a building, right? And and so in the water context of things, we've been talking about water storage innovation in your case in the context of Kenya. But mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could project a little bit to how this strategy could apply to other locations in the world, maybe mm -hmm. even places like the United States. Well, water development and water infrastructure is the same everywhere in the world. I, I know a lot of people in developed contexts think of it differently. I think they often don't think about it. But the actual only real difference is the amount of government investment into water infrastructure. That's the main difference I see when I go from the US to Kenya is how much has the government actually been able to invest so that there's pipes leading to my house so I can turn on a tap. Um, when I drive across the Gulf South, I've lived in New Orleans for a number of years, I see water towers of every size. Um, the same type of water tower that we worked with women in Kisumu to build for a water company there that we worked with them to build. These gravity-fed systems are used around the world, and it's actually the same infrastructure no matter where it is. The question is just of investment. Um, particularly in rural areas in the U.S., we don't have the same level of government investment, and they struggle with the same issue. Um, raising funding to dig things like wells, boreholes, lay pipes, and build tanks that you have to get grants for. You have to try to make special requests to the government or private in, or private philanthropy to try to get water to rural areas. So a lot of the stuff we do is super relevant to every context. It's just a question of where the money's coming from. Specifically for interlocking stabilized soil blocks, though, those are relevant everywhere that's not the cotton, black cotton soil. Um, rammed earth architecture is actually used in Arizona to build houses for environmental sustainability. It's also very cool architecture, good for air, hot Arizona areas. Compressed earth blocks are being used in several states for building. You can actually get training in the innovation from a company called Dwell Earth in Texas. Um, it's super, it, it's just, it's very relevant, especially in southern U.S., uh, where the soil type and the heat is very relevant, um, especially for a rural community. Something like this makes a lot of sense. 
gives us a lot to think about and leads us really well, I think, into our last question of the day as we wrap up this panel, which I'm going to ask uh, both of you to give maybe concise answers, your final thoughts related to this question. Both of your organizations work in developing countries that currently struggle with water security. So what have you learned about water security projects that could be applicable to developed countries at the beginning stages of scarcity? And Terry, I'm going to ask you to start. Yeah, so I guess I'm more on the quality side than the supply side, but you know, I I know that the US obviously we like to think of ourselves as having good water, but you go around the country and there's lead issues, there's you know, all sorts of uh stuff related to fluorinated compounds and so on and so forth. Like we certainly have water quality issues uh, in the US as well. And I think the problem that a lot of us have is that we don't really know what's going on. Like we need better understanding of the water quality issues in our local communities. Um, this this information can be better, um, you know, disseminated across communities. Like I, I don't think that much I hear that much about what the water quality is around where I live. I haven't lived in Massachusetts for very long, but <laughs> like, you know, I, I think that there is uh, definitely a greater um, need for just better educated. Um, folks here and then we then the problems can be solved a little bit better if we have the initial education about the water quality of our, our local towns and communities in the u.s as well thank you terry and, and sydney final thoughts uh, what terry said is really relevant there's a question of accessibility and there's a question of quality we work heavily in accessibility first because we tend to work in communities that have a scarcity issue uh, particularly with climate change as it is i think scarcity is becoming more relevant for everybody because there are even places that maybe they had water regularly and now they don't. Or if they had it, it's only coming seasonally. Suddenly they get a bunch in June, July, and then they get nothing for several months. Uh, water storage does become very important and it becomes important for people to be aware of what water infrastructure they have. Especially in the US, it's become so automatic and so easy. It's just there, we just turn on a tap and that's what water is for us. We don't understand that these towers we see are actually how we get them. And that the, the water from those towers comes from this river. And when there's no river, there's no water in the tower to feed your stuff. Um, so understanding our water infrastructure first and foremost is important, but then thinking through things like water storage so that we have access to it. So then as then we can work in Terry space where we can just worry about the quality of it. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.